What? Oh, damn. Well, I'm muted the whole time? Now we're recording. I was just muted. Doing an intro. You know, it's probably better. The, uh, <laughs> the previous intro was a bit morbid. We're going to keep it high vibes here at TFTC. I just ripped it with Dr. Brooke Miller. Rancher, doctor, father, grandfather, incredible American. Speaking truth, a lot of truth spoken in this episode. We need more truth out there. We need to begin shining light on the darkness that exists in our world. Times are heavy. We need to call out the demons. Demons are everywhere. They're lying straight to your face. Most people are just taking it. This trip is brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. I feel, I feel very safe being an Unchained customer. Over the last week, I know if I have a loan out, funds aren't being rehypothecated. I know if I have a vault open with them, I control two, two keys. I control my Bitcoin. I know if I have an IRA product with them, I also control the keys to that product. I have control. Unchained gives you control of your Bitcoin the way it should be. They're leveraging Bitcoin's multi-sig functionality, its native multi-sig properties to build Bitcoin custody, financial, estate planning solutions. Estate planning, not really like IRA, retirement planning. Better. Better term there. They're doing it the right way. They have their concierge team. If you're a business out there, if you're a high net worth individual, you're looking to get into Bitcoin and you want to hold your own keys, the other concierge team will take you from zero to having a vault set up in no time. They're going to get you comfortable. It's not that hard, freaks. I know a lot of you are a bit apprehensive. I don't want to hold my own keys. Concierge team is, is here to help lessen the, the burden for you, the mental burden. They're going to walk you through everything. Tell them that Uncle Marty and TFTC sent you. You're going to get $50 off the onboarding package. Which comes with hardware wallets, video conference calls, and a thousand cock bucks worth of sats dumped in your vault at the end of the day. Go to unchained.com, check out everything they have going on. This rip is also brought to you by Brains. Brains. It's, it's a pretty simple fact. If you're an individual who has an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you're an idiot. Look at yourself in the mirror, point at yourself, say, I'm an idiot. I have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains I'm not running out. You're an idiot. You're pointing at yourself in the mirror. You should be ashamed of yourself. Brains OS Plus firmware. Auto-tuning firmware, which allows you to stack more sats with your hash. Allows you to control your fans. Allows you to be more efficient as a miner. If you have an ASIC, compatible brains, you're not running it. Number one, you're leaving sats on the table, and anybody who leaves sats on the table is an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Go download brains. Brains.com. B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Check out everything they have going on. They have a lot more than the firmware. Go to brains.com, check it out. This tip was also brought to you by good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle here. Hoddle Hoddle here. 
I am Hoddle Hoddle and I am here. Just kidding. My name's Marty Bent. I'm here to tell you about Hoddle Hoddle, which is a peer-to-peer exchange and lending platform. No KYC, no AML. Good way to stack sets and use your sets as collateral if you want to, if you want to take that risk. Obviously, a lot of price volatility. A lot of people getting liquidated recently, so be aware of the risk of that price volatility. But if you're into that risk, lend.hoddlehoddle.com allows you to use your Bitcoin as collateral. No KYC, no AML. Get liquidity. Then at the Baltic Honey Badger Conference, which is going to be in Riga, Latvia, September 3rd and 4th this year, I will be there. Matt O'Dell will be there. I heard Kanye's coming. He's going to be there. Get your ass to Riga in September. Go to BalticHoneyBadger.com. Check out that conference. This trip was also brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here if you're a home miner. Or if you're you're an industrial miner upstream on the well pad or even behind a utility center using excess electricity, upstream data is here with the tools that you need. If you're not home miner, they had the black box and they're selling bundles. If you use the code FREAKS, you're going to get 5% off those bundles, which comes with the black box, which controls heat, sound, most importantly for home miners is the sound, the black box essentially eliminates the sound for you so your girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever you're living with doesn't get mad at you. Uh, We're selling bundles, comes with a black box and some ASICs. Use the code FREAKS, you're going to get 5% off that bundle. But again, uh, if you're doing bigger scale stuff, uh, like myself, for example, uh, I have a 50 kilowatt hash hut that has been plugged in for over half a year now and it has zero downtime has had zero downtime i am a paying customer who is speaking from experience here zero downtime with my hash hut uh, other than oil changes for the generator it's been an incredible product i highly recommend it uh if you may not if you haven't noticed yet uh, go check the price of asics they've been cratering <laughs> price per terahash that's so a relatively compared to a couple weeks ago asics are relatively cheap if you're in the oil and gas industry, you're, you're sitting here, one of those greedy oil and gas guys sitting on windfall profits, looking to diversify. Great time to diversify in ASICs. Uh, upstream data provides data centers. I use the 50 kilowatt data center. They also have 900 kilowatt data centers and others in between. And it comes with the generator. They know what they're doing. These things are purpose-built for Bitcoin mining. They understand the electrical infrastructure. They understand the needs of miners, whether they be, again, on the well pad or mining at home. They build incredible products. Go to upstreamdata.ca to check out everything they have go on, going on. If you get a black box, use the code FREAKS. You're going to get 5% off a bundle. Uh, so that's if you buy a black box and ASICs. If you are buying bigger hash huts, tell them that TFTC sent you when you go fill out your form online. Uh, again, oil and gas industry guys, if you're listening, good time to diversify. Just a, not investment advice. Saying you're looking for high quality products, the team at Upstream Data is building them. Do you like high quality? Do you have good taste? Good aesthetics? Good standards? Huh? Do you? Then you're going to want to work with Upstream. Enjoy this, Red Freaks. Take care.
You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Oh, we're live. Um, is he is he coming through your? Because I I can't really. No, nah, car. We need to get you a producer's mic car, so that we can't hear you through our ears. But I'm sitting down with Dr. Brooke Miller. Welcome to Austin. We've been having a great conversation already. We figured we just launch right into it with the stream. Uh, make sure we don't miss anything here. It's great to be here. Uh, what's going on in the world? We're talking about family. Uh, the world seems to be a bit chaotic, uh, pretty detached from truth and integrity. We're talking about my two sons, your children, your grandchildren, and the need and the pressure that we feel to try to make the world a better place for them specifically. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty wild. Uh, I just remember back to my childhood and the freedoms that we enjoyed as children growing up in the 70s and 80s, um, so different from today. I mean, your generation, or my children's generation really don't know what they're missing, really. <laughs> what are we missing? What was it like growing up in the 70s and 80s? Oh, gosh, it was, it was awesome. There was obviously no social media, no cell phones, um, no computers. We made our own entertainment. We... We figured out a meet up and uh, meet up with our friends and play ball or go fishing or just go have a field party. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually feel like I'm on, so I'm 31 now. That's hard to say. I've been saying I'm 30 for the last year, just turned 31. So I'm 31. And I feel like even, even for somebody my age, we were in this transitionary period where, yes, I had a cell phone. I was a freshman in high school, but it was still just a pure um, handheld phone, no touchscreen, no internet, nothing like that. And so like I was mentioning, we lived in South Carolina and I remember vividly living in South Carolina between the ages of like 10 to 13. That's what we did. We just ran through the woods. We paintballed, we skateboarded, we worked on mopeds, we worked on go-karts and we we're just outside 24-7, 365. But then moving back to Philly, going through high school. The iPhone came out, I believe it was my junior or senior year in high school, and that definitely changed everything. And that, So that's crazy to think. That was 2008, 2009, within a 13-, 14-year period, the way that children interact and meet up specifically has changed so drastically. Yeah, and uh, you know, we often ref used to reflect about that when I was a kid, and these old-timers now become one of these old-timers. <laughs> you don't look like one. I can tell you that. Oh, yeah. Um, we'd go out at night. We lived in a small town. We'd just go out at night and stay out. And the way my dad got us to call us home was he had a just an incredibly loud whistle. And he would whistle. And you could hear it all over town. And we'd say, oh, time to go home. <laughs> and uh, I, had, I had a dad with an incredible whistle as well. When we were in Northeast Philly, uh, that's how my brother and I, We'd, uh, we could be like three blocks away. My dad, every dad had their own whistle. Uh, and we could hear uh, our dad whistling from the stoop. 
and you know, all right, Connor, it's time to go home. I got to go eat dinner. Yeah. And, you know, unlike our kids, I mean, I think unless they fooled us, uh, we knew exactly where they were, what they were doing just about every minute of their life, you know, and uh, it's even getting more that way where you have to do that with what's going on in the world. And our parents had no clue what we were doing most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think's changed so much? Do you think it's like the, the idea of the the helicopter parents or kids losing interest? Like why, why have we gotten so... Younger generations, specifically like today coming up, like how, why is their upbringing changed? So Society's changed. Yeah, um, there are a lot more perils out there. I mean, with the connectivity and uh, mass media and social media and cell phones and computers and internet, there's just so much more to navigate now than it was. We were, you know, I lived in rural America, rural Virginia. We were the last to hear about anything. <laughs> you know, fashion would start in Paris and then go to New York. And that's the way I, you know, things happened. And uh, we were the last to hear about anything. And that was good and bad. I, th I look at it, look back on it now, and it was extremely good. Um, we didn't have to worry about predators. Um, violence. Well, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot like that right now where where we live, um, very small town community. Um, but it's still changed a lot since I was a kid. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about where you live. You're eighth generation Virginian running, uh, uh, an Angus farm, Ginger Hill, Angus. Yep. You're the president of the Cattlemen's Association here in the United States. The United States Cattlemen's Association. United States Cattlemen's Association, yes. excuse me. <clears throat> Uh, and you're a doctor as well. Yes. So, and uh, hopefully I'm a good father and a uh, good role model and uh, lover of freedom. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not many of those <laughs> left these days, it seems. That's what uh, we're trying to do here in this show is get people back to thinking like, hey, we are being forced into a digital panopticon. We need more freedom fighters and that's why i'm excited to have you on the show particularly is um i have developed a relationship with your daughter and son-in-law and i've learned a lot about you specifically what you do with ginger hill um at the angus farm and then also in your parallel professional life being a doctor and you saw some shit uh over the last three years with the the covid um and the reaction to it and I guess putting your stethoscope on and thinking with your doctor's perspective, like wh what has the last three years, how has that changed your perspective on just the medical industry at large, pharmaceutical industry and, and how society interacts with it? It's opened my eyes. It really has. Um, <clears throat> I term COVID-19 and the <clears throat> response to the pandemic as being uh, the greatest disappointment in my professional career. <clears throat> um, to see an attempt at centralized control of doctors, uh, the propaganda that is uh, just bombarded on the average citizen in the United States. Um, it's been a big, huge disappointment. Um, it reminds me of 
you know, Nazi Germany or communist Soviet Union, what's been going on and how they try to control the narrative and how they try and <clears throat> silence free speech. <laughs> we were talking about it where I think we're streaming live on YouTube. I think I forgot to hit the, uh, the, the button that <laughs> keeps us from streaming on YouTube. But yeah, I, I've had many strikes on this channel <laughs> talking about this, just trying to have an open conversation. Like, Hey, there's some things that don't seem to be aligning with the, the reality that I'm seeing in front of me. Like, are we allowed to question it? Particularly, um, around the vaccine specifically where it's, is it safe? Should we be like, we were discussing like the fact, I think I'll just speak openly and candidly. I think the fact that there are people in the mainstream openly gloating that the FDA has approved the Moderna vaccine and another one of the, the vaccines for children between six months and five years is absolutely disgusting, especially when you consider the amount of data that's come in and improves without a shadow of doubt that, that that at that age, children are not really in any danger. It's, it's probably actually, if you look into the data of, of taking the vaccine and more importantly, taking multiple shots, it's probably riskier for them to do that than to actually get COVID and try to take that on head on. Well, I try to look at everything as risk and reward and not... Uh, <clears throat> A healthy child has about as low a risk from having a complication or dying or hospitalization from COVID-19 as, you know, humanly possible. And then you put on the top of that, so there's really not a lot of reward for giving them a vaccine that reduces their risk. But you look on top of that, the vaccine that has the emergency use authorization that's uh, being used now is outdated. I mean, the virus has mutated numerous times and uh, it's becoming less and less and less effective at mitigating disease. Um, initially, the speak was it's safe and effective. And effective at what? You know, they're, they've become masters at, at manipulating their studies and making studies look positive when it financially benefits them and making studies look negative when... Uh, when it doesn't financially benefit them. So really there's no reward for children that I can see, uh, healthy children to take uh, this vaccine. And it's loaded with what we're finding out more and more and more adverse events and, and side effects. I mean, the things that I'm seeing as a physician, we just never seen before. I mean, it's like weird, unusual neurologic problems coming out in vaccine recipients. And you can't explain them other than they got the vaccine. Hey, correlation is not causation. That's that's what they'll throw at you. You can't you can't say that that's what the cause was. Yeah, um, I've had a couple of people that have told me these stories about going to their doctor and uh, something having some malady uh, that occurred in a reasonable time frame following the vaccine, and uh, a lot of the comments were. Well, we don't know what caused it, but it's not the vaccine. <laughs> it's definitely not that. <laughs> no. We're just going to roll it out automatically. Why do you think there is? Because it seems obvious. We were talking about like the life insurance claims mm -hmm. data that's been coming out. We've, we had Ed Dowd on the podcast a few months ago who 
is an ex-Wall Street analyst who's doing a deep dive into all that data. And it seems that there is some signal coming out of the life insurance industry that says, hey, post Q1 2021, something entered the population that is killing more people uh, than would than have otherwise died in, in years prior. There are way too many people taking uh, may, uh, taking up the life insurance claims uh, than in years past. Something had to happen. And we had a year's worth of, of COVID data before that. And um, it was still significantly higher than that. And again, like you said, it's becoming glaringly obvious when you have young athletes, young, just young individuals in general dropping dead of what they're trying to say is uh, SADS now. It's um, sudden adult death syndrome. I think it's, uh, I, I, it sounds like sudden adult death syndrome, but I think it's sudden arrhythmic death syndrome. Arrhythmic. Yeah, from a cardiac arrhythmia. Mm-hmm. Um, probably brought on by an element of myocarditis. Myocarditis causes inflammation in the heart wall and uh, it disrupts our electrical circuits in the heart mm-hmm. and puts people at increased risk of uh, having a uh, cardiac arrhythmia, sudden death. And have you seen any of these um, adverse effects to your patients? Or? Uh, I haven't had any patients that have had sudden arrhythmic death syndrome. Um, had a lot of people with strange, unusual neurologic complications. Um, Parkinson's disease, uh, stroke and heart attack. Um, my very first patient that we saw, what we felt was an adverse event, was a, a gentleman about my age, uh, had well-controlled hypertension, no other cardiovascular risk factors. And nine or 10 days after he received the first injection, he had uh, not one, but two clots form somewhere in his body and go to his brain. It's called an embolism uh, um, and uh, he had two rather significant areas of damage in his brain, and his life has forever been changed. Uh, difficulty speaking, difficulty walking with a hemiparesis, which is a partial paralysis on one side of his body. It's been two years, and he's regained a lot of his function, but he'll never have the normal life that he did. Um, and I see no other reason for him to have that. He didn't have a cardiac arrhythmia. His cardiovascular uh system was completely clean. He had no structural heart disease. He just had two clots, which we're seeing well documented that uh, uh, the spike protein that is produced by our body when the mRNA uh, tells our cells to produce this spike protein, it's, it's causing clots. It's causing problems. It, uh, it is persisting in the body. Uh, initially, the pharmaceutical industry said it wasn't going anywhere, just be in your arm and mm-hmm. be sh- there short-lived and produce this spike protein. But we're finding spike protein and um, the lipid nanoparticle. It's been studied for you know, at least 60 days. In at least 60 days, you're seeing lipid nanoparticle, which is the vehicle for the mRNA uh, and the spike protein in our body uh, for a long period of time. Uh the amount of spike protein that uh, the body produces in response to the mRNA shots is so much higher than an acute infection. Um, yeah, these risk factors do happen with acute infections, but if they're a lot, the risk is is a lot shorter lived. And then when it compounds, if you 
you had a double dose of boost, another boost. And yeah, the more shots you get, the increase your your risk of of suffering from one of these complications. Um, and interestingly, uh, data is coming in from all over the world uh, in foreign countries where they're doing a little bit better job at uh, collecting and reporting this data than they are in the United States. Um, increased exposure to spike, i.e., the boosters is showing uh, increased risk of having uh, severe COVID illness now. <laughs> so it's actually making you more susceptible to the virus, which is interesting. But that's another thing you mentioned, like the data collection here in the U.S. It seems like they tried to, or maybe they didn't even try to, but the control, there, there really is no control group here in the United States from what I've seen, all the a lot of the studies that I've seen. Like, they tried to create these studies where they give the vaccine to one group um, and saline to another. Uh, and they came to find that throughout the course of the study, those who were supposed to be in the control group wound up actually getting the actual vaccine because of all the propaganda that was fed to them. Uh, oh, I didn't heard that. Uh, I did know that, you know, the, the drug companies don't have to produce their raw data. Uh, and they were trying to hide it for years and years and years. And the FDA was complicit in that. And, uh, I did know that the uh, they vaccinated the initial Pfizer trials. They vaccinated thirty some thousand patients and allegedly gave placebo to thirty some thousand more. And in the six month that they studied, the uh, the groups, the all cause mortality was higher in the vaccinated group than it was in the unvaccinated group. Um, yet the incidence of COVID, symptomatic COVID was lower uh, in the vaccinated group. And there were apparently two deaths in the unvaccinated group and one death in the vaccinated group from COVID. And so, you know, they spun that data and showed an incredible relative risk reduction from dying from COVID. 50% less <laughs> <Yeah>. likely. <laughs> yeah, 50% relative risk reduction from dying from COVID. But the really... Uh, telling thing that they did uh, because they didn't want to study possibly the long-term problems with this vaccine is they, at six months, they vaccinated the control group. Yeah. So that's, I think that's what I was referencing. Yeah. 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 At six months, they vaccinated the control group, which uh, is unethical as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, the ethics around all of this is very interesting because that's the one thing that's always perplexed me. And I was always open to the vaccine potentially being viable and actually work, but the way it was rushed with Operation Warp Speed, just knowing the amount of years of data that's usually collected before a vaccine's introduced to the larger population. That's why I was originally apprehensive. I didn't think there was any like nefarious intention or uh, greed going on behind the scenes. I was just like, yeah, there's literally not enough time to gather enough data to make an educated decision about this. Common sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. There's a saying uh, uh, I've tried to live by is do not co-opt your common sense to the experts. And it seems like much of the country, if not the world, has done that in the last three years, two years. Yeah. Um, I forget who it was it told me. It might have been Robert Malone. It says majority of people want to be told what to do. I hope that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, 
that well, that's the other thing. A lot of people, we locked down the economy, right? And people thought, all right, the only way to get back is um, via this vaccine because they were programmed. Uh, we're only going to be able to go back and operate throughout the economy if if we get this vaccine. And a lot of people took it as just like a, please get me the hell out of these lockdowns. I'll do whatever. Absolutely. Uh, we're friendly friends with a lot of our kids' uh, friends and try to get to know them. And there's one in particular that I was encouraging not to get the vaccine, young, healthy guy. And he just said, you know, I just, I just want life to be back to normal. I'm going to, if, it, if taking this shot helps it be back to normal, I'm going to take the shot. And uh, I bombard him with what I think is good scientific evidence. And finally he, he contacted me. He says, please stop. I realize I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> You're rubbing salt in a wound. Well, how does it get this bad how, in your perspective and in your opinion? How do you think so many people on the national, at a national scale, at an international scale fell for all this? Because now like me, I've always been anti-authority. I don't like when people tell me what to do. So when this stuff started happening, whether it was lockdowns or... I thought I liked you for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> or get the vaccine. I was just like, don't tell me what to do. No, number one. Number one, I was like, all right, there's literally not enough data. Number two, like I don't like when talking heads on TV are pointing at me and say, you better do this. Uh, this has probably been the most effective propaganda war that we've ever experienced in our lifetime. I remember uh, last summer, my brother and Hodge and I went <clears throat> went to Chicago to watch, uh, meet my daughter Ella, and uh, watch the Diamondbacks and Joe play against uh, the Cubs. We had a great weekend. Fly back home late at night, turn on the radio, driving home from Reagan National, you know, about an hour and a half drive, and uh, the amount of everything coming about about the announcers advertisements was get the vaccine it's the right thing to do it's safe and effective it was just a huge propaganda war on uh, anybody that felt like uh, they may not want to take the vaccine so it was just it was just propaganda yeah no i i remember vividly christmas 2020 we were back in philadelphia my wife and i and we went to go meet my parents in the city for dinner and we Ubered <clears throat> for my wife's parents um, to the city. And it wasn't even about the vaccine, it was just about the mask. And there was just like crazy mask reinforcement propaganda on the radio. It was just like, you're wearing, you're doing your part if you're wearing your mask. And we're sitting there in the back of the Uber. At that point, having been in South Jersey for uh, the better part of a year where it was relatively um, lax because it was, it was a very smaller population, more rural. So we ended up been wearing our mask and it just felt weird being in an Uber wearing a mask, but we're just getting bombarded. And it happened like there was three commercial breaks in the 45 minute ride to the city and each one was bookended with like, wear your mask, you're doing your part propaganda. And it's just, imagine being the Uber driver sitting there all day listening to that. And just the constant droning of reinforcing that message. Yeah, the mask Nazis were, they were really mean. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't wear your mask, it was like, you're a bad person. Yeah. Not that uh, 
there was any evidence, any scientific evidence to show that mask work actually was quite the opposite. You know, two randomized control studies that are out uh, then and now, I mean, showed no statistical benefit for wearing a mask. And, and it makes sense. I mean, uh, the size of the COVID-19 virus is thousands of times smaller than the pores in the mask. And it used to be a pet peeve of mine. I mean, I thought the mask probably increased your risk, possibly increased your risk of not having a good outcome for several reasons. But you watch people that wear masks and they're constantly fiddling with the mask, you know? And uh, part of this route of this, this transmission is, is through the oral uh, cavity. And, and then if you do have COVID and you're breathing through that mask, you're rebreathing COVID uh, and you're seeding your mask and then you, 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 you're, you're outside, you cough, you walk into a, a indoor facility and you just brought loads of COVID with you with your cough. Um, I even had one patient come in and we were talking about mitigating risk and what to do. And he goes, he goes, I, I don't go many places, but when I do, I always wear my mask. <laughs> and I looked at his mask and it looked like it had been stomped through the dirt. <laughs> it was grubby. Um, I don't know. You think of like kids wearing masks too. Like they're just they're Petri dishes and forced to wear that all that That can't be good for them. And didn't it increase like respiratory diseases or instances of respiratory um, viruses for children and even COVID, but outside of it, I think I saw that somewhere, but I don't know. I just think about myself. There was one time I was on a plane forced to wear a mask and I'll never forget just like sneezing like uncontrollably and having like snot in the inside of my mask. <laughs> and I tried to take it off because uh, <laughs> I had snot in it. And the stewardess was like, put that back on. Like I just literally blew my nose and I was like, can you get me another one? <laughs> <laughs> you were probably looked on as a leper. In exactly. That plane. <laughs> it's uh, uh, but it, get, it got insane, and th that's what I worry about. Like, is there, in your perspective, any? How do we turn the tide of? Because there's a sunk cost fallacy involved with this too. Right? For two years, people bought into wear your mask, get the vaccine. I'm doing my part, and, and there's millions, tens of millions, potentially hundreds of millions of people out there globally who did their part and they don't want to admit that maybe they were being manipulated or led astray. And that's what I worry about moving forward is how do we avoid <clears throat> falling prey to these central planners and their propaganda techniques. Uh, well, you're doing your part and <laughs> I'm doing mine and we just got to not be afraid to speak up and, um, yeah, we just, we ought, we ought to not be afraid to speak up because, um, you know, physicians like myself are, are, are being attacked and investigated. And, How bad is it? Well, I hear it's pretty bad for some people who are really out there sticking their neck out. I mean, uh, medical boards are trying to intimidate them and, uh, um, you know, a large part of, because of the complexity in running a medical practice now <clears throat> and uh, all the things that you have to do to collect your money from insurance companies, um, it's really become an insurmountable task for a doctor to run a medical practice. And so these big, large healthcare organizations are 
providing the, the backbone of the business end. Doctors just want to practice medicine. Um, and so they're signing on with these healthcare corporations. But these healthcare corporations are getting between the doctor and the patient. They're trying to tell doctors what to say, what to do, how to treat. And if you look at it, if you really analyze it, there are very few employed physicians that are out there. Most of them are independent that are talking about this and, and the problems with our public health response to this pandemic. Is it all greed, do you think? These healthcare corporations, are they in bed with big pharma? <clears throat> they yes. like government programs. They like the payments that they receive from government programs and complying with the government. Um, so, yeah. It's money. Money and power. Yeah. Not about sex. Three three evils. Money, power, and sex. <laughs> <laughs> At least I don't think. <laughs> you never know. Those people in the swamp are a bit weird. They get, uh, yeah. get deviant sometimes. But going back to it, like, how do we, again, the like, how do we fix this? Like it seems we're so again, the episode the name is Truth in an Insane World. Like something as fundamental as healthcare. Like an individual should be able to go to a doctor and expect that a doctor has their best interests at heart. It just again, it's like people will yell at me for this, but like it doesn't seem like that has been the case for the last two years. It seems like people are being driven either by fear, greed, or just pure stupidity and ignorance. To, to anything like it seems like there's some part of the medical establishment that is just filled with a bunch of drones who are taking orders and not thinking critically about what those orders mean or the consequences of seeing them through um yeah we got to decentralize things you think so yeah absolutely got to decentralize things and uh allow the people on the front lines that are making the decisions to make the you know that are that are caring for the patients to make the decisions um, when I, uh, when I treat a patient that I've never seen, I'm not sure how to treat them. I don't call the CDC or the FDA. I call a doctor that's done it and had success with it. So somehow we got to figure out how to decentralize things and we got to, I don't know whether the right word is deregulate. We've got to change how people look at their health insurance. Um, we got to incentivize healthy, uh, behavior and healthy lifestyles, um, I could, I've said many, many times that I could provide medical care <clears throat> um, at a lower cost and still make a good living if we looked at health insurance like we look at uh, your car insurance. Car insurance does not pay for your oil changes and your routine maintenance. It pays for major disasters. And I think uh, that would be a much better system um, as far as our health health health. Uh, system goes. How's the health insurance work now? They try to take on everything. And Well, I mean, I think someone told me that salaries were frozen around World War II. And so, um, you know, corporations and companies started offering health insurance. And uh, that's how, how we got into the current method or, or mode of health insurance where the health insurance basically covers everything, covers most everything. Uh, and there's a lot of, lot of costs associated with administering that and a lot of waste 
you know, if someone's paying for something out of their pocket, they're not going to ask for a test that they don't really need to have. <laughs> frequently, I, we were talking at lunch uh, earlier today, and frequently I see people that come to the office and they tell me what tests they want. And uh, I ask them, I said, well, is this going to change what we're going to do in your healthcare? Like a typical one is anybody comes with a back pain, they want an MRI. And I, and I asked him, I said, well, is this back pain debilitating, en debilitating enough to you where you would consider an operation? Oh, no, no, no. I said, well, then why do you want to do the test? Because that's the only thing, that's, that's the decision-making process there. If you're not ready to have an operation, why do the test? Or not really waiting to undergo some sort of treatment? Well, I just want to know. But if you tell that person that it's going to cost them they're less likely to want that uh, and, and less likely to want that procedure or that uh, that diagnostic study. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of waste there because uh, a lot of health insurance will, will cover those and a lot of doctors uh, want to please their patients and do what they ask them. Well, does that waste and that structure also lead to complacency on the doctors end in some cases where they're like, all right, we're just going to run every test for every patient? And Yeah, it's not uncommon to hear people uh, tell me when they go to a doctor or emergency room, the doctor never even examined them. It's always a nurse or something like that. No, I mean, the doctor doesn't put their hands on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can, I, you know, as a physician with 30 some years of experience, I can pretty much narrow down what I think is wrong with the patient just by after talking to them. But uh, diagnostic skills have really gone by the wayside and been replaced by expensive tests. Doctor patient again. It's a. I'm just thinking in my mind of my experience um, with physicians throughout my life, and yeah, it's a lot of tests. Especially thinking back to New York specifically. Um, just a couple questions from a questionnaire, like not even looking up from the clipboard. A couple blood tests, and then you get a call a couple days later. It's very. Uh, uh, it's not very personal, or it didn't feel that way at least. Yeah, I mean. Uh... Medicine's changed a lot since I've been practicing medicine. Um, some good, some bad. Uh, but that's definitely, definitely changed. It was a lot more patient-doctor interaction when I first started uh, practicing medicine. But now we got to pump them through and uh, put them on the assembly line. Uh, yeah, it's been everybody's a, a number to be put in a spreadsheet uh, with, a, with a profit margin on top of their head, it seems. That's... It's really sad to see. I think, and it's not only in healthcare too. Like it seems that throughout our economy, again, like there's we're disconnected from truth in a lot of areas. Whether it's healthcare, in the monetary system, um, food specifically, like you mentioned, preventative healthcare and getting people healthier. Like it's never it's a pill for everything. There's a shot for everything. There's a test for everything. There's never a um, why don't you get in shape, fix your diet, and prevent a lot of uh, the ailments in the first place? Yeah, if you uh, if you don't lead a healthy lifestyle and and uh, wreck your physical condition, there's always out there somebody who has the cure that's going to cost, and they're going to be able to make money on. And big pharma has perfected that. They they sometimes I think they come up with drugs and try to invent diseases to treat. Yeah, well, and then, and then you see, like, with Monsanto and Bayer, you have the food industry 
starting to merge with big pharma. Like what are they putting in the food to affect um, metabolism or other areas of the body that then lead to consequences down the road? Yeah, food's a big pet peeve of mine. And uh, it's interesting that you're you're talking about that right now. I mean, uh, definitely big food, big food corporations can make huge profits on cheap crap food. Uh, and that gets back to the dietary guidelines, um, which is something that's sponsored by the government. And uh, big farmers there to 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 give you the cure. Big food's there to cause the problem. Big farmers there to give you the few, give you the cure. Yeah. And I mean, I can't stop thinking the the picture of the crowded beach in 1970 has been going around on Twitter the last week. I mean, I've seen it a few times throughout the years, but for some reason it popped up again. Um, and it's crazy to see. Like you're talking about growing up in the 70s earlier. That picture of people. If you ever go to the Jersey Shore and try to snap a picture like that today, it would be, uh, it would not, <laughs> the people would not look as healthy as yeah. they did in the seventies. Uh, before I, before we started seeing all these pictures going across the internet and they're, you know, they're, they're awakenings for hopefully for some people. But I used to talk to my patients when we talk about healthy food and the dietary guidelines and how my thoughts and, and, and my experience is so much different than what uh, the government sponsored by dietary guidelines uh, promote. But I said, just just think back. I said, you're about my age. Think back. Go back and look at your high school yearbook. The fat kids that you thought were fat back then would not be fat today. And very few people would be overweight. Now, every, now like 60, 70% of Americans are overweight. Yeah. Now, somebody, that was another funny picture that's going around the internet today. It was a picture of a scene from Full Metal Jacket where I forget the names of the characters, but the uh, the fat one in the battalion is getting reamed out and like run through a uh, calisthenics routine. Uh, and the fat one in the battalion would be considered like somewhat skinny today. Yeah, it's pretty sad. And I mean, I'm going to transition this to you running Ginger Hill Angus. Like, so you, you're around what many would consider the purest form of food that we have the the best bang for your buck in terms of of beef beef protein and look at you you're in your 60s is that correct yeah 60 my 61 almost 62 yeah okay more jack my body's in great shape my mind i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but you're uh you're jacked you're jack 61 year old you're running a cattle ranch what having been on on the ground ranching um your whole life essentially like like how has america specifically got completely disconnected from what is a pure source of food most people think their food comes from the grocery store <laughs> and you know covid van covid the covid-19 pandemic and the disruptions in the fly, pl supply chain were rude awakenings for a lot of people and now we're having a lot more people pay attention to what they're eating, where, where it's coming from. Um, and hopefully more people will pay attention to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm certainly paying attention. I've got a freezer full of beef at my house. Thinking about buying another freezer, loading it up with more beef. I think I'm going to be buying a half cattle from you um, for uh, beef that I'll be eating on the East Coast later this summer. And it's scary though. 
seeing what's going on. You're seeing a bunch of videos of farmers coming out. Hey, my input costs are up. Uh, cost of fertilizer, cost of a bale of hay, uh, slaughtering costs all going up. Uh, like, what is the state of the North American rancher at this point in their their businesses? Um, and what's it been like for you personally? I guess we could start. Well, I'm the president of the United States Cattlemen's Association, but I'm also a physician. So my livelihood doesn't depend on um, cattle ranching, although I love it uh, and I don't want to lose money doing it. But so many of our friends, their sole uh, income comes from cattle ranching. And they're some of the hardest working, most ingenious, smartest people I know. Um, but they're really taking it on, you know, cattle ranchers are really taking it on the chin and it's as a result of concentration in the meatpacking industry and uh, multinational corporations that basically have a monopoly. Um, these corporations that are controlling the fat cattle market are reaping obscene profits. And I'm not against anybody making a profit. I think that's part of capitalism. But when you, uh, when you control, artificially control a market and there's no laws of supply and demand, uh, the market's broken and we have a broken cattle market. And I see it as a national security issue. Um, if we I think uh, 40% of cattle farmers have gone out of business since the 80s, mm -hmm. 40%. This trend continues. Uh, we're going to have a real food crisis in this country. And we'll be dependent upon four major multinational corporations uh, to supply our food. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but when COVID-19 hit, uh, the model in the packing industry and the food industry is bigger, is better, and more efficient. And uh, they have these huge packing plants, and these workers were you know, right side by side, and they had a lot of out they had some COVID outbreaks, and so these packing plants were closed, and then we thus we saw shortages on the, at the meat counter. Because the packing plants weren't weren't putting food out, they weren't processing animals, um, and uh, the food corporations just capitalized on that and made more money. Mm -hmm. They increased the prices of their product to the retailer, and they decreased uh, the prices to the producer, and so the producers got screwed and the consumers got screwed. But uh, the packing Packing industry made billions. I think uh, the percent of the retail dollar that cattle producers have dropped, you know, amount of money that they get from the cattle from the uh, consumers has dropped from about fifty percent of the dollar in uh, two thousand and five or two no two thousand and fifteen to thirty seven percent. In 2021, uh, while all the while our input costs have continued to go up, so it's it's not a good it's not a good picture for the food security of this country unless our country makes some serious changes. What are those changes? Just decentralize, break up. Is it? Would you break. consider it like an olig oligopoly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Um, Personally, I think the you can't 
survive with this much concentration and this much of a monopoly in the packing industry. One, one, four companies controlling so much of our food. Um, we at the United States Cattlemen's Association constantly are trying to work with USDA and congressmen and senators and uh, the executive branch to to try to do something about uh, the ways in which the uh, monopoly is is orchestrated by the big food. Um, there's some bills right now that are on the Senate and House that are being debated, and uh, there's 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 strong there's strong pushback from these big corporations. I mean, they they're billion dollar corporations, and they have great lobbyists, and politicians need to get reelected. What's your what, so what is your role as the president of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association entail? You just represent representative of your well, everyday cattle. we we have a, our organization is a true grassroots organization that represent uh, uh, farmers and ranchers all over the United States whether you be purebred producer like I am commercial producer who basically raises the calves that go into the feedlots eventually or into the food chain system we're a seed stock or, uh, uh, operation uh, or whether you're a small feeder or a backgrounder backgrounders are people that take calves off the cow and sort of grow them slowly and economically and try to make a, a profit that way by putting cheap gains on these animals. Uh, we represent all of that. Um, what we don't represent is, is our competing interests, the, the big packing corporate uh, companies, which are, which are needed, uh, but they wield way too much power. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately our largest trade organization, National Cattlemen's Beef Association tries and represents or says they try and represent both the producers and the, uh, and the meat packers. And that'd be like uh, going through a divorce and having the same lawyer for you and your wife. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. So do they, I assume they wind up uh, tending to favor the, the meat packers. Yeah, they have. Um, what's the saying? He, he, who uh, it's the golden rule. He who controls the gold makes the rules. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's the, the really tragic thing is, is in the eighties, I think, uh, we, the cattle producers voted in a, a checkoff system where every time an animal sold a dollar goes to the national beef checkoff. Um, and it's, they collect about 80 billion, $80 million a year from cattle producers all over the country. And unfortunately the national, national cattlemen's Beef Association uh, pretty much controls that checkoff. And they use a lot of the money that we send in that's a government-mandated program to lobby against us. Hmm. And there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the checkoff program right now. And the checkoff is needed. Uh, we need it to, to fight, you know, bad information about the health and safety of beef. Uh, and bad information that's going on about uh, cows ruining the environment and <laughs> cows ruining your, or beef ruining your health. Uh, so it's a, it's a much needed program, but unfortunately we don't have any ability to amend the checkoff. Most people that are paying into the checkoff nowadays never had a say on whether there was even a checkoff. It's been so long ago that it was instituted. That's yeah, sort of like being thrust into the fiat monetary system. You're just <laughs> born into it and you're like forced to use it. You're like, wait a second, I don't want to use this. Yeah. And 
That's interesting that they would use that money to lobby against actual producers. Like, why aren't incentives aligned? Again, you said the golden rule. You has the gold, so it sounds like the B Packers have the gold, and they're they're controlling. Like, how do you better align incentives? Uh, I guess you have to sep- you have to separate uh, you have to separate the money from from uh, any. Lobbying organization. It's got to be for the good of the cattle industry as a whole, good of the beef industry as a whole. Right now, it's not. It's uh, you got to separate um, trade organizations mm-hmm. from controlling the money. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. It's very interesting because we. Ha- are you aware of the te- the beef initiative down here in Texas? I've heard a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've had Texas Slim on uh, and Cole Bolton who runs KNC cattle here in Austin a few times over the last eight months. And they're trying to, they're really trying to decentralize the processing part of it, specifically get it more processing plants locally here in Texas and then take that message to Tennessee and Colorado or their next targets. And uh, somebody who was pretty ignorant to the just the state of food at large, cattle, uh, more specifically than the message and the aims of the beef initiative, really seem to make sense to me um, in terms of further further decentralizing the processing of of the beef and delivery of it away from these these large meat packing. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, um, my fear is that. <clears throat> Uh, we'll get a bunch of regionalized and regionally and independently controlled packing plants. And the big four will exert, flex their muscle and crowd them out of the market and they won't have anybody to sell to. Won't have any big grocery stores to sell to. And then they'll go under. Meat packers will buy them for cents on the dollar. So how would, is there a way to protect? Yeah. How do we, uh, I haven't figured that one out yet. All right. <clears throat> Is it on the consumer to go direct to? Oh, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be on the consumer, both in trying to buy as much direct and locally as you can. And if they want the healthiest beef on the planet and, and, uh, uh, beef that is grown in a humane and regenerative way, that's that, that those type of people are, you know, when you buy far, directly from the farmer, Farmer lives lives there. He lives with those animals. He lives on the land. He's not going to abuse his animals. He's not going to abuse the land. And uh, that's a good way to do it. But they also have to start talking to Congress because they got to they got to start uh, letting Congress know that this is a very important issue to them. Congress is not going to listen to us as producers. They're going to listen to voters. We're a very small voting block, voting minority. So we got to, yeah, I mean, I think more voters are starting to wake up. There people are saying that the beef is going to go the way of caviar. It's going to be a luxury item, which is crazy to think about. Like when you talk about, talk about the picture of uh, people on the beach in the seventies, but if you've ever seen like the picture of the, the pricing at a butcher shop, it was easy to go to your but- local butcher, get a, a cheap steak. It was part of the, part of the diet before the FDA came in with the, the food period. It was a staple. Yeah. 
And now it's going to be a luxury item, which is insane to think. I hope not, but you might be right. I mean, uh, are, do you are, do you know about the story uh, of how the uh, how we got this way as far as uh, our diet? Uh, what's his name? Key, not keys, or the keys? Yeah, Ansel Keys. Well, just like anything, America needs to be focused on a crisis. And President Eisenhower had a had a heart attack, so there was a lot of congressional uh, interest in how do we prevent heart attacks. And Ansel Keys was a, I guess he was a scientist. I don't think he was a physician. And he had a theory that animal products and fat caused heart disease. And he set out to prove his point. And he initially set out to do epidemiologic studies, causation and correlation, (laughs) Um, do epidemiologic studies and show uh, and prove his theory. Um, Problem was a lot of studies, I mean, a lot of countries disproved his theory. Well, he cherry-picked his data and only, I think he only included seven, eight, nine countries out of 20-some that he initially set out studying and he, and he presented this to Congress. And this was, again, a political football and Congress, uh, there was a lot of opposition to it, but it was uh, first uh, politicization of our food. Um, and like in so many other things, the government got it wrong. It's crazy to think of how bad they got it wrong now. Like having not, because I mean, I grew up on the food pyramid. You look at it, it's like eat a bunch of sugar. It literally has sugar on it, which you should. Well, when they took fat out, you should stay away from. I think 1978, they came out with the first set of dietary goals, and the next year was dietary guidelines were born. But when they, when you take fat out of food, it doesn't taste very good. And so they, about the, so we had the perfect storm about the same time. The sugar lobby paid Harvard, three Harvard researchers to prove that sugar didn't cause diabetes. So we had take food out of, take fat out of food, tastes like crap, let's put sugar in it. And sugar is highly addictive. Oh, yeah. Highly addictive. I think about going back to like being a 90s kid. I think it was a two liter of soda at the table, drink, eating fun dip. You're literally dipping, licking a stick and dipping it in a bag of sugar. Uh, it's insane, like drinking Gatorades at baseball games, thinking that was like hydrating you. Yeah. Did we go insane as a society? Like, <laughs> it sounds like it, doesn't it? Right. Like, how anomalous is this period of the last five decades since the 70s? And, and gosh, I don't know because I'm paying attention now and I wasn't paying attention in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think like how just going back to those pictures alone. Then you even have those old time videos. You can go all the way back to like 1920 of those kids in Times Square, like looking at a video camera. I don't know if you've ever seen this video, but it's fascinating just seeing people of that era look at a video camera for the first time. But again, everybody's wearing a suit. Everybody's felt. You have to imagine there weren't many drastic changes to diet before that period. Um, a thousand years leading up to it were probably uh, pretty pretty stable in terms of the foods that were available because we didn't have the technology to manipulate it that much. And then 1970s, the industrialization of food and the continuation of that until today. We're talking about like 50 years, which really isn't that much time in the grand scheme of things. Really throwing a wrench in uh, 
a well-functioning society. And like, but then what does that do as a doctor, as a physician? Food affects the brain, right? And what does that do for the mental health of, of a society? And what are the externalities that come with that? Yeah, I never really, you know, I, I do know food affects the brain and, and that's a great point that you bring up. Uh, you know, are we having all these crazy things happen uh, because of food? I know that uh, one way to cure anxiety and depression is, is a carnivore diet. I mean, that does a great job at uh, helping a lot of people with mental health issues in addition to physical health issues. Um, you know, back when when I ate a regular standard American diet, uh, I don't think I was as happy as I am now. <laughs> I definitely didn't feel as good, didn't sleep as good. I had a lot more physical ailments. Um, but I think happiness was affected too. So, you know, the, the brain is a really a complicated, complicated organ. Yeah. And then, I mean, you pull back. It's like the farm industry. It's like, oh, you're depressed. You're not feeling well. Let's not worry about preventative care, like changing your diet. Here's a, here's a Xanax. <laughs> Take one a day. Yeah. Then you have people literally bragging about their, I mean, there was like a TikTok theme that I caught wind of a couple months ago where it was like a big thing for a group of people in a room. So like you'd pan the camera over to one individual and they'd be like, here's how much Xanax I take a day. And the next, like, here's how much I've been prescribed and like bragging about their SSRI um, distribution. It's like, what is going on with the world? I don't know. I've not seen that before. Um, yeah. I know pain medicine uh, was, I mean, uh, the government is trying to get that under control. Um, but, uh, you know, big pharma was, was able to manipulate a lot of data with pain medication and the problems that we have with, uh, opioid abuse is at crisis levels right now. Yeah. Yeah. When my wife and I just watched, uh, was it dope sick? Yeah. Um, the, the show about the book, about the way the, uh, Purdue pharma and oxy, uh, oxycotton, um, ravaged Appalachia specifically and then yeah you really dove deep into the incentives not only of the doctors but the salesmen uh, oh, I even had a lawyer contact me from Purdue Pharma and I mean I, I don't know what what how I came in contact with initially and he was representing Purdue Pharma and he was he did his best to try and convince me that Oxycontin was safe <laughs> <laughs> you so you stayed away from Oxycontin as a physician um I, I'm not saying I didn't prescribe it. I haven't, and I haven't prescribed it. Uh, I mean, we have to prescribe pain medication for people. I tell people that have chronic pain, however, I mean, pain's, pain medicine is good for, for acute pain. Mm -hmm. But I tell people who have chronic pain, I said, uh, I said, they talk, they want, you know, more pain medication, more pain medication. I said, well, you know, it's, it's habit forming and addictive. And pretty soon, you know, you build up a tolerance and you not only have one problem, you have two problems. You have chronic pain and you have addiction. Um, and, you, and, and you explain thing, people to people in that manner to people and uh, not many of them can really um, argue with you and, and uh, hopefully you keep people from using or, or relying on chronic pain medications. Yeah. That's uh, um, being from Philadelphia it was considered the per capita of the world at one point. You had that 
and people driving down to Florida literally to go to the CVSs down there, get as many pills as they can, come up, bring it back to Philly, and distribute throughout like the college scene. And that, yeah, particularly like kids my age, I had a lot of friends who fell down that path. It's just like, extremely sad to see. Yeah, I, <clears throat> there are not many families in this world or in this country that aren't somehow um, affected by addiction and overdose, chronic pain medications and substance abuse. When, so we're talking about a lot of large overarching problems, whether it be with food, medicine, people reacting to propaganda. What do you, what do you think is driving? Do you think it's more bad leadership, lack of personal responsibility, <clears throat> combination of all? We need better leaders. We need better critical thinking skills. Yeah, absolutely. All of that. Um, the leadership problem, I, I, I don't know how to, f to fix that. Um, you know, our, our, you, you referenced uh, Thomas Jefferson and our founding fathers laid out a really good plan that government should not be a way of life. It should be a little bit of a hardship and you, you know, real people, real citizens should run the government. And we've sort of gotten into this mode where we have all these career politicians and uh, everybody sees that, you know, they're making fortunes out of their, their careers. Um, so I, I'm one of those that thinks we need to institute um, term limits. Mm -hmm. Hopefully people would be trying to do the right thing as opposed to being trying to re get reelected. Yeah, I'm a <laughs> big proponent of term limits. And then uh, if you're going to make a new law, you have to delete two. Um, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Again, we're talking about um, your deal, Liberty. Uh, that book was given to me by a freak. And it dives into <clears throat> Thomas, Thomas Jefferson's correspondence, the letters that he had with other founding fathers and politicians and citizens and his friends at the time. And it's just really interesting to see how they viewed the importance of setting a good base for the Republic during Washington's first term as president. And it's so fat, like we're so disconnected from the, let me ask you a question. The ideals that this country was. Do you think our on. founding fathers ever exempted themselves from a law that they passed? I know Hamilton did. Did he really? Yeah. He was yeah. a bad, he was a bad treasury, but most of them, no, I think they were, I mean, yeah. and it's shines through in this book where, the amount of thought and the the weight that these individuals felt on their so shoulders while while architecting the base for for this republic it weighed heavy on them. Where here, uh, it doesn't seem like it weighs too heavily on many politicians that exist um, today. They seem to have a habit of exempting themselves from the laws they pass. Oh yeah, um, you can insider trade mandates. <laughs> all the congressmen and their staffs were, were, were exempt from oh. the clot shot. Oh, they were? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that well, that's not well known, is it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, that and, you know, the Affordable Care Act. They exempted themselves from that too. They don't have to, they don't have to <laughs> contribute to it or they don't have to they don't use have it? To, they don't have to use it. They don't have to use it. And, uh, I call it the unaffordable or unaffordable care act. 
<laughs> Why do you call it that? Because most people's insurance doubled. Yeah. And covered less. Um, yeah. So most, unaffordable care act. Most people want uh, Canadian or, or British or European healthcare systems here though. This, this is what happens when, when you, when you export that, that model to the United States. No, it's great. I mean, I was 26 when the affordable care act came to be, or it, it when they signed it all, 2010, 2012. I can't remember. I forget. Well, <laughs> when I got kicked off my parents' plan. Um, at 26, mm-hmm. uh, I was like, ah, I'm not paying. I don't want to pay for this. It's too expensive. Little did I know I got fined, um, like 1200 bucks. I think they have since rescinded the fine if you don't pay for it, but it was literally fine for making a personal decision. Like, ah, I'm young. I'll risk it. I really want healthcare. But, but you needed OB coverage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, <sighs> Uh, again, it's what I've been describing on this show and in the newsletter for some time now is a, and what I try to highlight and hope to really break through to people is that, and I think everything that we've been discussing today highlights the fact that many systems are complex. The food system is complex. Medical human body is complex. Money is complex. It should not be centrally planned. Like in trying to beat into people's head, like use the heuristic. Like if you have a complex system that is being centrally controlled, it is inevitably going <clears> to <throat> result in in negative externalities because you can inherently not control a complex system centrally. It, it will lead to to bad results. Yeah, the Soviet Union was perfect example of that, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, and look what's going on now. Uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about, I mean, the Biden administration's reaction to the whole energy crisis has, I mean, we haven't even touched on energy yet, which is the basis of all, all of our productive capacity here. And it, it's hard not to look at everything that's going on from energy to food, to the COVID reaction with vaccines and stuff. And I'd be like, are you people trying to destroy the economy? Um, because it's, with energy specifically, it's like you talk about like Soviet type of control. I think that's what's leading to a lot of, ironically, the problems that are bustling up over Russia and Ukraine is uh, we've shifted a lot of leverage into Russia's hands. The West has by idiot by having idiotic energy policy, where it's like, hey, uh, we're going to get a unreliable wind and solar. We're going to shut down our nuclear power plants, our coal power plants, and we're going to. Um, become heavily reliant on your natural gas, Russia. Um, and when shit hits the fan, Russia's going to do what they want. And Western Europe's finding out, like, oh, shit, we really need that natural gas. Spin back up the coal plants. And then here in the United States, um, we're falling down into that trap too. Trying to centrally control something as complex as an energy market is really putting society in a precarious situation because again energy is the basis it's affecting food it's affecting again like talking about going back to jersey this summer and it's becoming very apparent that people are running out of diesel on the east coast i'm like if i go home to jersey are they going to be able to get food to where where i live to the grocery stores near me you're making too much sense (laughs) (laughs) 
it, it, it's complex, but uh, common sense still, uh, still plays a big part. Why is common sense so lacking? You think people are just lazy? You think it has something to do with education? Or... I think there's a lot of intellectual laziness out there. Where does it stem from? Do people like to be told what to do? Some people do, it seems. Yeah. You don't and I don't. Oh. Um, I think it's intellectual laziness. I think it's just going along, people just not paying attention. Um, up until now, their lives have been really good. Now we're seeing some things that may be some signs that the next generation may not have it as good as my generation has. Um, tough times make strong, tough men. You know, good times make weak men. Yeah. How do you break that cycle? That's what I worry about. Um, I mean, let's say we are transitioning from like hard times create strong men. Yeah. I'm not going to thrust this. I'm like, let's just say like these are the hard times that make millennials, Zoomers, whatever, strong men that then make good times. And I think about my son, my sons now. I'm going to say plural. I had another son the other week. Um, how do you make sure they don't become weak men? Be That's, a good father. Yeah. Be involved in their life. Set a good example. Um, live it. Live it and make sure they see it. What do you mean by live it? Live a good moral life and, mm -hmm. and uh, try to teach them right from wrong. Yeah. Don't, don't expect somebody else to teach your child. Um, definitely don't let the internet teach them. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that's like, I, I guess your family is a good example. Is how, how long has the, the ranch been in your family? Uh, I might, I'm the eighth generation to live in Virginia. Rappahannock County, Virginia. Um, but the, the cattle ranch, I'm, I'm the third generation and my children will be the fourth. And if, if they decide to go on with it, uh, and then my grandchildren would be the fifth generation if one of them or decided to go on with it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, three generations. How did it make it three? We won't even talk about four or five. How did it make it three? Yeah. <sighs> I got infected <laughs> with the cattle bug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a young man. Yeah. Um, tell you a little story. Um, my dad and I, my dad was my hero. And uh, one of the one of the funnest things that, that I did when I was a little kid was like we would go out when it cooled off in the summertime and we'd go check the cattle and look at them, say, I like that one. Which one do you like the best? Blah, blah, blah. Talk about them. And uh, <clears throat> he, he had me out there one time. He said, son, what do you want to do when you grow up? He said, dad, I want to I raise cattle. I want to be a rancher. He said, well, you better find a damn good job. <laughs> <laughs> So I think I took his advice um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it's just in my blood. It's in my blood. Yeah. Then, I mean, knowing uh, your daughter, son-in-law, it seems like you've raised uh, incredible children. They're raising. We're very proud of all of our children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very proud of them. And <clears throat> they, uh, they're good people. They have good, strong values and they're hard workers uh, and they care about other people. I can confirm uh, this is true. This is, uh, no, and it's, it's great to see. And like, as again, going back to 
being a, a father myself, relatively new to the game, but it is crazy once you have children, how quickly your mind <laughs> shifts to, holy crap, I have a, a crazy effect on this individual's trajectory. And it takes two people to raise a children. It's very hard to raise children by yourself. Mm-hmm. And I give, give all the credit in my world to ha- all the credit in the world to my wife on how good I th- we think that our children uh, turned out. I mean, I hopefully was a good example um, and I, and I was very much involved in, but she was, she was the one that really raised them. Cause I, you know, I was out, I was working, I was working my butt off. I was working my butt off on the, on the cattle farm and I was working my butt off in, in medicine. And, uh, you know, we made a conscious decision that she wouldn't work until the children were out of, you know, basically out of in, in, in school. Mm-hmm. She did a great job. Thank you. Uh, Mrs. Miller's sitting right here. You did an incredible job. Both of you. Both of you did. And that's, uh, no, I think we're fortunate. And that's a shame right now in today's day and age. Most people don't have that luxury. Is it a luxury? Not even a luxury. No, I mean, it, I mean, both of them, you know, to, to, uh, to make a go of it with the cost of everything and taxes and uh, you got to have two jobs. Yeah. You know? Yeah, this is, yeah. The, I mean, that's another harpening back to the 70s, the site WTF happened in 1971. It's crazy to see um, the chart of uh, like having a dual income household just explode from that level when we went off the gold standard. And that's why I'm so passionate about Bitcoin. Part of the reason why I'm so passionate about it, I do think that sound money is an imperative to get us back to a point in society where we can have stronger families and parents being able to focus on their children instead of having to focus on going to get a paycheck that is going to be completely decimated by taxes and then duly decimated by uh, inflation, diminishment of your purchasing power over time. We live in a society where people are just on this hamster wheel, like let's get the paycheck. Both parents hop in the car at nine, put your kids on the bus, hop in the car, go to work, work paycheck to paycheck. Um, struggle to just stay afloat and it's really weird that this has been normalized on a grand scale and people just expect like we were saying um you're just born you are like, oh this is the way it works but i don't think this is the way it should work or has to work people like to be taken care of now you know they want the government to take care of them yeah but mm. I don't know. I've seen the effects of not having like strong families or most importantly, like a mo- mother and a father. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I don't want to discount that at all. I mean, uh, I think I haven't, I don't know what the, I can't quote the statistics, but your chance of going to prison if you were raised by one person versus two goes way up. Um, yeah. Family is, is definitely uh, extremely important in, uh, growth and development of our society. Yeah. And it's weird. And we've gotten to a point where like millennials are, and then my friends are my family. Um, my coworkers are my family for a lot yeah. of people, not all of us, but yeah. <clears throat> wait until tough times happen. There's nobody, nobody like family. Yeah. Like we were saying like in COVID, yeah. you guys had the experience of having your daughters come home and having everybody under the same roof and really bond during that time. I've talked about silver linings. We had that happen. My family as well. 
Yeah, it's all about family. That's a, one thing I feel very fortunate. I've, obviously, my parents, incredible parents. They were around for myself, my brother, and my sister, and very good parents focusing on our education and making sure we're thinking critically and not liking authority. And beyond that, too, I have aunts and uncles and very fortunate that in my extended family as well, there's not one divorce. And got a lot of cousins. That's and, amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> I think we're, we're, we're pretty good there, too. Yeah. May have been a divorce or two, and not anybody in my yeah yeah there's, yeah my immediate family. <laughs> I I retract that statement. You're pretty unusual, <laughs> or your family's pretty unusual. No, again, I feel very fortunate. Obviously, there's been tough times, but feeling big Irish Catholic family I pushed through it all, and I don't know. It's weird because I feel like I feels so normal to me being like brothers and sisters of my cousins and I'm really close relationships with my aunts and uncles and um, most people don't have that. And I think everybody should have it. It's a good feeling. That yeah. support group, that safety net. Sounds like you're going home to Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> I told Parker when I was coming down here, it's only going to be a few years and then, no, then on my wife's side too. Um, our family's very strong, very close together. It's weird. It was, uh, uh, my wife was best friends with my cousin growing up. So our families already knew each other very well. Um, mm -hmm. it was just, there, there could, maybe there could be a case for arranged marriages. Like it does make sense if the, uh, <laughs> the parents align well and are, have good values. It's made it very easy for us as, um, as we've grown our family. No, it's just you know, maybe we're drifting too far into family values here, but I, I, I do want to stress that to anybody listening at home, like it's something you should strive for. I know it's hard. I mean, a lot of people my age are like, no, we're not going to have kids. It's too expensive. Yeah, I, I just don't understand that. Why? I, I just don't understand that. The love that, <sighs> the joy and the happiness that children bring you is just incredible. Yeah, it's indescribable. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the bond that you have with them. Yeah, it's, they're missing out if they don't have children, that's all I have to say. Yeah, and I think you'll find a way, too. Like, I think about my parents were young and they had me. They were only 21. Um, which wasn't always young, but in the early 90s, it was relatively young, and uh, they were still in college. They found a way. Yeah, we did. We, uh, we found a way. Yeah. I wasn't making much money as a fourth year medical student when we got married. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And then once the kids arrived. I'm making anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I mean, talk about motivation. Like, mm -hmm. I don't make enough money for a kid. Have a kid and you'll make enough money uh, to support a child. Um, well, you know, we, and we were living off Ann's salary. She was a nurse. She was a nurse at the time. And, uh, I don't think we felt like we lacked anything. We had we had all we needed, you know. Yeah, yeah it's um, more money we make now. The more more we spend, <laughs> more money, more problems. Biggie, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. Biggie had it right when he uh, was spitting that into the mic. The uh, yeah, are we going to solve all the world's problems on this one podcast? We're going to solve beef, medical industry, building stronger families. What is the well, building stronger families would solve a lot of the world's issues. 
I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, yeah, oh, now we're going to get like education and seeing everything going on in the public schooling sector, particularly, it seems like there's like, again, going back to this theme that's always been in the back of my mind. Sometimes they call me Marty Jones and Alex Jones like character here on TFTC because it seems like they're trying to just demolish modern society, whether it be via food, the vaccine rollouts, and then you get to schooling and it seems like there's just like an active campaign to separate children from their parents and allow the public schooling system to tell children what is moral, what is ethical, what is correct. Um, and it's getting to the point where they're trying to mandate that. Yeah, we had a governor candidate in the state of Virginia this past election who lost uh, lost the race based on that right there. What what was he? I remember this. Uh, it was uh, Terry McAuliffe was was former governor of, of uh, Virginia uh, and uh, running in what Virginia at that time was leaning really strongly Democratic, and uh, I think we had a couple school board incidents. Her parents came and spoke about, you know, things that were being taught in the public school system and how they disagreed with it. And McAuliffe uh, made a fatal, fatal error when he said uh, parents sh- shouldn't be telling the school systems what to teach their children. That's the school system's responsibility. And uh, he lost. And I think uh, he probably wouldn't have lost if he didn't say that. Well, but you mess re- with people's kids and no, you don't mess with people's kids. No, you do not mess with people's kids. But it really gets into the mind of how like the state mm-hmm. thinks. Like, no, we, we know what's best. Yeah. And every data point <laughs> that you look at, whether it be healthcare, at the, universal healthcare, more expensive, less coverage, food, shittier food, making you unhealthy, leading to crazy uh, diseases throughout society. Schooling, objectively making people dumber throughout time. The public schooling system is abysmal. Americans are getting dumber and dumber by the year. Yeah, we're definitely dumbing down the public school system as as a society. Yeah. So every one of those instances you point, the government intervention has made things materially. We're like, it's undeniable that things have been made materially worse off by the government putting their hand in it, which is really perplexing at a time when everybody is pointing and begging, it it seems, the government to solve a lot of these systemic issues, particularly around food and energy right now and inflation. Um, And I want to force everybody to read the the ordeals of liberty uh, and, and understand that the government isn't here they're not going to save us. It's just literally the definition of insanity to keep going back to the government to tweak their policies to fix the problems that exist today. Yeah, what's the definition of insanity? <laughs> <laughs> Doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Exactly, exactly. I think this is, uh, it, it blows, it's, it's getting to a baffling point where, and uh, I try to stay apolitical here, uh, and point out that, I mean, a lot of it's administrative 
administration agnostic because of the lack of term limits, really. It doesn't matter who's president at any given point in time, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Like, there's been a material degradation in the quality of government services uh, over time, no matter who's <clears throat> Republican, Democrat. Yeah, if you, uh, if you don't vote party line, um, they'll find somebody to primary you out the next time. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. What do you think about like the prospects of something like Bitcoin taking away the power of the government? Well, my fear is that the government is going to prevent it. How are they going to do it? I don't know. I don't know. They, I mean, I don't know how they're going to do it, but that's one of the reasons that I, and I am so excited about Bitcoin myself is the freedom that it, that it, uh, gives us. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. I mean, I'm willing to die on the Bitcoin. Literally, I don't want to die. I have two young boys, a wife that I love, mm -hmm. a big family that I love as well, I just described. I don't want to die. But I think this Bitcoin is worth dying for because I think it's that imperative. Like It's getting to such a point in society where if we don't begin to take away power from the government, and I think taking away the power of money which is in the hands of mm -hmm. the central bank and the government are sort of merged at this point is probably the most effective thing you can do. Yeah. Um, I don't want to put you, I know you're president of the U S cattlemen's association. I don't want to make, force you to say anything. Uh -huh. um, but I worry, I worry about where, where we're, we're headed as a society and uh, what really scares me is a world economic forum. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Those guys don't even try to hide what their intentions are. No. Um, That's the thing. They look like such villains. They look like James Bond villains. Yeah. The way they look, the way they talk. <laughs> That's the other thing. You know, they talk about like politicians. The one that comes to mind, he's not even a politician. He's just the transportation secretary, Buttigieg. When these people talk, so you look like a drone. You sound like a drone. You don't sound, there's no authenticity in any of, uh, any, of the way they posture publicly and they take that to the world economic forum and it's put on crack. You just have Klaus Schwab saying, this is the way the world's going to be a terrible accent uh, there, but you'll own nothing and you'll be happy about it. Yeah. And we know better than you again, talk about like authority. And that's the scary thing about the world economic forum. They're a supranational unelected sort of body that seems to be forcing uh, economic action globally where it's like who voted for you I didn't ask for the world I didn't ask for Klaus Schwab I didn't have a say whether or not um, you can affect my day to day life but you do you are a lot of people don't know anything about them a lot of people I mean I, I bring up the World Economic Forum in a lot of different circles and I, I'm not familiar with them yeah. not familiar with that well you, you better get familiar because they Absolutely. have a lot of influence yeah a yeah. lot of what's going on in the world. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, but again, I do, with that being said, I am overall optimistic because again, these people are so obviously villains and I don't think they can, they can keep up in the meme war with people like Bitcoiners or just, we're going to ridicule them with that. That's what we have to do. We have to begin just ridiculing these people. Fauci, you're short, your voice is annoying and you're, you're objectively wrong. Um, <laughs> you're, you're a hypocrite too I mean yep. 
Yep, he sure is. The the Rand Paul um, questioning of him last week about the incentives with the royalties, um, I think was very telling. Um, When you lie and you explain why you lied and tried to justify your lie by explaining why you lie, that's a bad sign. What what was this particular lie? Oh, well, well, you know, early on during the, the pandemic, he was telling people not to wear masks. <laughs> yeah. They didn't work. And he flip-flopped. Well, the reason I lied is because there was a shortage of masks. I didn't want a shortage of masks for our medical personnel. That was hogwash. Yeah. Think there's any shortage of shortage of cloth? <laughs> I mean, I mean he 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 blatantly lied and then he tried to justify to the American people why he lied. And that, and well, now it's, it's with the lie with the vaccines too is doubling and tripling. Yeah, they're dub- they're doubling down, down on on uh, you know the 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 original vaccine with the original variant may have had some benefit in high risk people, but now the virus has changed so much. It's it's from my understanding and from what I see on the ground floor, you know, in medicine, I don't see it preventing disease or severity of disease. People are dying still. The people that die are the people that are obese and have diabetes and cardiovascular disease, whether you've been vaccinated or not. Um, But for them to continue to double down on an outdated vaccine, I mean, it'd be like giving the flu vaccine from 10 years ago. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's a good, there's a good argument to say that the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the mass vaccination actually uh, accelerated the rate of development of variants. mutations and variants. Yeah. yeah, put a put a yeah. put a put a selection pressure on put a selection pressure on what you're actually vaccinating for, and um, the variant started replicating at a higher rate because it wasn't as affected by the vaccine. Yeah, that was another another like early thought I had about the vaccine role. I was like, is it? Like everything, again, because I wanted to think critically about your research, like everything historically in terms of reactions to pandemics, one of like the big things that people said was like, don't vaccinate during the beginning stages of pandemic because of... Gert van den Bosch was the first person that I heard say this. He's a uh, Belgian virologist. Uh, you, you select for mutant variants. Yeah. Um, and that's what we've done. Um, then you have the risk of ADE too, is that what it's called? Antibody dependent immune enhancement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's happening is, uh, um, you know, the vaccine, I don't even want to call it a vaccine. Um, it's a therapy because it's not a traditional vaccine. A traditional vaccine is, you know, inject someone with a, either a altered or a killed viral particle. But this is, uh, you know, genetic therapy. Um, but the vaccine is, is causing the production of spike protein and we develop antibodies to spike protein. Um, and the antibodies attached to the spike protein on the virus. Well, if the virus is changing, the spike protein is changing and it's changed significantly enough where these antibodies, these, uh, antibodies that have been induced by the, uh, mRNA therapy do have an affinity for the spike 
but they don't prevent it from latching onto the ACE receptors in the cells, but they actually prevent your natural antibodies from latching on. So this actually enhances severity of disease and uh, harms your harms your innate immune system. I mean, this will probably definitely get us kicked off YouTube, but <laughs> is, is the vaccine giving people AIDS? That's like one of the questions that's been in my mind, like especially if you get one booster, two boosters, like people really have the inability to separate AIDS from HIV, not understanding that it's like an autoimmune, <coughs> like it's a, it just. Acquired immune deficiency syndrome. In other yeah. words, is it, is it creating a, an immune deficiency in, in people? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, I think it's harming immune systems. It's not per se giving them HIV that I know of. No. I mean, anything's. You can get AIDS without HIV, correct? Not that no, I know of. No? No. 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 Uh-uh. uh-uh. AIDS is a syndrome induced by destruction of our immune system by the uh, human immunodeficiency virus. Okay. I've never heard, I may be ignorant, but I've never heard of someone getting AIDS without being infected with HIV. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it seems like it's, like we don't know the long-term effects of this. It literally has not been no. enough time. I mean, uh, here we have a, a protein that's being, or a, a genetic material that's being injected in our body that's, that's programming our cells to do something. What possibly could go wrong? <laughs> I mean, it's only going to do this one thing. <laughs> and Not. <laughs> no. And then you have examples of strokes, cardiovascular problems. Yeah, that's, that's the, the, the direct result of the spike protein. But what I'm saying is, is what is the mRNA doing to our genetic code? Is it doing anything else? Is it turning off this gene, turning on that gene? Over time, I think. And the more, the more you get, the more, you, you know, the more it's affected. Uh, there's a pathologist um, that we follow out of uh, Idaho named Ryan Cole, and he's seeing uh, a definite uptick in cancer diagnoses and reactivations of cancers. And uh, there's a lot of support for the theory that this actually turns off some genes that, that are for cancer prevention and surveillance of cancer. Pretty scary stuff. Yeah. Like what if this, like you've, I've heard, the, the scary possibilities with myocarditis specifically where your chance of death within five years is increased by 25% at 10 years, like 50%. Like, is there, and you've had some virologists warn, like, yeah, it may not be obvious in 2022, 2023 even, but if we hit 2025 and you have a three, four-year lagging, um, effect from this. Like, could we wake up in two years and be like, holy shit, what the hell do we do? Um, because of the amount of people that it affects. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I've been not, I've been proud to, to say that Ann and I did not get vaccinated. Um, more because we trusted our own immune system 
uh, to fight this infection than we did on unknown, what we considered an experimental technology. Yeah. And, uh, but unfortunately, people were bombarded with propaganda saying it was safe and effective. And, and healthcare providers all over the country were just parroting it's safe and effective without even considering possible ramifications. Well, it's very clear it's not effective at this point. And I think it's very clear it's not safe, too. Yeah. It's a scary conversation because, like, what? What are the ramifications of uh, the safety, the lack of safetyness, is a delayed response? And like, do we wake up in 2025 with, like, and again, we're not saying this is going to happen. We're just playing thought experiments here, YouTube. We're trying to have a conversation, critically think through this. Like, is there a possibility we wake up in two years? And I don't know, there's studies coming out that it temporarily uh, reduces sperm count in men. Like, are we creating a children of men moment where it's going to be impossible for people who are associated with a, a vaccine to have children at some point? I think, I don't know what's going to happen, but there, uh, there are a lot of possibilities that aren't good. Um, and that's why I always get back to risk and reward. What's the risk of taking the vaccine and what's the reward? And uh, I think for most healthy adults, the risk is there and there's really not any reward. Um, and now with the, the, with the, uh, mutations, the, the reward really is, I don't think they're there for anybody, no matter your risk, especially we have safe and effective treatments now. Mm -hmm. Um, and the risk only compounds as you get more and more. Exactly. Yeah. The spike protein is, is truly pathogenic. It, it, uh, damages, it damages a lot of organs cardiovascular system, the endothelial wall, the vascular system. It's doing things that uh, we've never, ever seen before, causing such a wide variety of potential side effects. Do you think there will be justice for those who have been adversely affected by this? Like, do we, like, I think we need to, I don't know why Fauci's still on TV. Do we throw out the FDA? Do we throw out the CDC? Why does... The World Health Organization exists. Why do we? Why do we cater to these? That seem to be just figureheads. That well, it's the American people that have to do that. They have to demand it if it's going to happen. Because if we keep the status quo, it's nothing. Nothing's going to happen. Yeah, that's what I worry about: the sunk cost fallacy, where people don't want to believe that they've been duped. Yeah, it's hard to. It's hard to. Uh, it's hard to admit you're wrong. You talk about like other, like people are like uh, obviously drones and look like evil characters like Lena Wynn, um, Walensky at the FDA. And you see these people at press conferences, the way they speak, their articulation, their, their inflection. Uh, it's very scripted. It's very like they're actors trying to. What I can't understand is how they have any credibility. They've been wrong so many times. If you take this vaccine, you will not get COVID. How many times did you hear people say that? It was. This uh, is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I mean, that's one of my favorite, like, clip, clip, uh, the clip series is the, uh, the falling effectiveness of the vaccine. It's 100% effective. It's 90% effective. 75% effective. It's 33% effective after three months. Like, 
what about all the people that have taken it and that have gotten COVID and they come out and say, I'm glad I got my shot. It would have been so much worse if I hadn't. <laughs> that's, that's the latest. One. I would have been dead. I, I remember, uh, you know, we were seeing a lot of people that had been fully vaccinated come down with COVID. And I was talking about this and people would attack you. That's not true. I was seeing it um, because of all the propaganda. But, you know, the latest is, is oh, it, it mitigates disease. You won't, you'll, you might get it, but you won't get as sick. Yeah. I mean, I got, I caught the Delta variant unvaccinated. I mean, I got pretty sick, but I survived. It was, wasn't the worst flu I've ever had. Well, up until Omicron, we rarely saw someone get COVID twice. If you saw someone get COVID twice, most likely one of the two times was a false positive because they were running the, the PCR test so many cycles and concentrating the genetic material so much that they were calling things COVID that weren't COVID. Um, if you realize, I mean, there was no such thing as influenza the first year we had COVID. Right. <laughs> no such thing. Completely eradicated. So I think uh, initially... Uh, but I think Omicron has changed enough where it is infecting people that um, that uh, have previously had COVID, but at not an extremely high rate, but it's not uncommon. But thankfully, if you survive COVID the first time, your chance most likely of surviving again are pretty doggone good. Yeah. Especially with treatment. That was another thing people just forgot about is like how viruses work. Like viruses want to survive at the end of the day so they become less virulent over time. Yeah. Yeah. That common sense went out the window. <laughs> yep, and and that's looks that's been the pattern. I mean, uh, de uh, Delta was a little bit more infective and less deadly than the original version. I don't even know whether it was Alpha or what what they call it, it was just COVID nineteen. And Omicron has become a lot more infective, uh, but a lot less um, deadly in most people. And some people get very very sick from it still, though. I mean, people still do die from it, although. Um, not on a percentage basis. I don't think as many as the previous variants. Yeah, again, going back to like critical conversation about this, like people see uh, individuals like ourselves talking about a vac bad about the vaccine, saying like you're denying COVID, but like you're a doctor, you've treated COVID patients. I've had COVID, like it's real. It affects, Absolutely, it yeah, affects, I'm, I'm definitely not a COVID. I'm not a COVID <laughs> denier. Yeah, it affects people. It affected me pretty. Pretty ag aggressively, not gonna lie. Uh, survived, took ivermectin, and, um, and a slew of other um, medications that were over the counter and not expensive, and didn't force me to get an injection. But that's the other thing. Where did this come from? Like, what are your thoughts on the origin of the virus? Did it come? I mean, is it becoming consensus that it was the Wuhan lab? I don't have any independent knowledge, but it sure looks like that. Yeah, and if so. The NIH is supporting that lab. Like, why was it being worked on? Because it's illegal to do it in the continental United States. Fort Detrick, you can't do it there. I don't think you're not supposed to. I mean, Congress sent a law, and I don't know when, but you're not supposed to be able to uh, work on gain of function. Yeah. And uh, so they, just, they just farmed it out. It's like uh, we farmed out our oil industry. <laughs> right? Like, what is this? Like, why are they even working on that? Like, is there... From a doctor's perspective, is there any sensible reason that you would be working on gain of function? Personally, I cannot 
think of any sensible reason um, other than germ warfare. Yeah, right? Yeah. I can't think of any any reason why you would, would do that. Um, sure didn't seem to help us out in this pandemic either, did it? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was conveniently timed, though, after a spasm in the repo markets in 2019. That's where, like, the Marty Jones comes out. It's like, all right, did they release this germ warfare because the financial system's in such a dire strait? Or are these people really Malthusians who do think we should depopulate the world? Well, you have one guy that's sort of self-appointed at directing the pandemic response who's into eugenics. People not people don't really understand that either. Yeah. What is uh what is Fauci's history of eugenics? Bill Gates. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Gates' father was a famous eugenicist. Yeah. Boris Johnson's father was a famous <clears throat> eugenicist. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um but again, you two, I'm just asking questions. Are we allowed to? <laughs> free and free and open flow of conversation and information. Yeah. Why am I crazy for asking these questions? Why am I why is it dangerous to ask these questions? That's another thing. Why could this get pulled from YouTube? Why could it get a little disclaimer on it? Definitely get a dis disclaimer on Spotify, potentially Twitter. Why? Why can't we ask these questions? And we're like, that's what I want people at home who may be skeptical of this conversation. It's like, yeah, you may not have to agree with everything we're saying or believe everything that we're saying, but should we be able to say it in the first place? I think so. Like, Absolutely. We have a constitution that says so. Yeah. We have to worry about disinformation. Uh, what was that again? We have to worry about disinformation. You got to tell people what is disinformation, what isn't. It's safe and effective wasn't disinformation. I don't think it's ever been labeled as such either. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad when um, you think the disinformation police are the ones actually spreading the disinformation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably getting in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my bad. <clears throat> what do you think? All right. What the... Speaking truth in an insane world. That was the title of the podcast. Like, why can't, again, where are we in society if we can have this conversation? I'm sorry if I'm getting in trouble. Thank God I'm self-employed. I can't help myself. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not getting yourself in trouble. I'm I'm the one. I know, but I'm sorry if I'm getting you in trouble. I don't want to get anybody in trouble no, you're here. Not, you're not getting me in trouble. I'll be all right. We should be able to speak truth. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, believer in that. Yeah. Freedom of speech and truth and, and trying to get to the truth. <laughs> And again, this is we're just trying to have, just ask questions here. That's weird. That's been the weirdest thing. Again, going back to like my anti-authority tweet, like don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me not to ask questions. Don't. That just makes me more skeptical. Yeah. Um, and you're not the first doctor. To, you're the third doctor to come on and have that moment on the show. Or it's I'm going to get in trouble. Get in trouble. Doc, Doc Woods from Wyoming. And Dr. Mary Care from here in Dallas, um, all within the last eight months. And it's so weird to me that up, like upstanding individuals like yourselves who are, seem to have 
incredible careers where you actually care for your patients and do good work and you're coming from the best of intentions, just having these types of conversations are, are worried. Like, what does that say about the state of our world? Um, I think it says it's, things are pretty fucked up. Excuse my language. Yeah, you know, I mean, are you familiar with the Great Barrington Declaration? No. <clears throat> Great Barrington Declaration was authored by three world-round scientists, uh, Sunetra Gupta of Oxford, I think, um, Martin Kulldorff of Harvard, and Jay Bhattacharya uh, from Stanford. And uh, they came out with um, a paper that talked about focus protection of uh, society and people at risk and how the public health response should be that as opposed to locking down everybody, um, that lockdowns wouldn't work, but be actually harmful, which they've proven to be on multiple fronts. Right after the Great Barrington Declaration came out, uh, there were emails between Francis Collins, then the director of the CDC, I think, and Anthony Fauci, stating that they needed a swift and strong takedown of this document and the fringe scientists that wrote it. <laughs> Can you imagine the fringe scientists that wrote it? One of the doctors from Oxford, very reputable scientist. That's the other thing, the science meme that came through. No, but that, those were the emails that got Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, we have this evidence that there was some coordination. And so that's, this is where like the media comes into it. And the media is a big cog in this disinformation machine. Ironically enough, because they're... The media is supposed to keep everybody honest. And unfortunately... They're just part of the process right now. Yeah. Part of the problem. Like, look at me. I'm just some idiot from Philadelphia who likes Bitcoin. I don't want to have these, I don't want to be the one like airing these conversations. I'm not saying that like this is the biggest platform in the world, but nobody else is having them in the mainstream. And again, people are saying, don't have that conversation. So I'm like, all right, I want to go have it. Um, but like, yeah, there's nobody doing the public a service of, giving a perspective outside of the one that's being force-fed to them. Our republic is dependent upon a free and um, non-biased media. And we've lost that. Um, the, the media is so polarized. Uh, it's, it's scary. Yeah. They, um, they're supposed to be the watchdogs. They're supposed to look for truth regardless of your ideology. And... Unfortunately, they're controlled by these oligarchs. And the watchdogs have turned into lapdogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rather, uh, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of disgusting. And I've become, even though we were talking about, I was on, made an appearance on Tucker Carlson. I like Tucker. Um, but still that format of just cable news. It's just, again, it's inherently like yucky to me. It's like, this doesn't even... It seems like overproduced production, um, a play, if you will. Um, Whereas not like honest conversations yeah, like this yeah. happening at that level. I obviously have never been on Tucker Carlson, don't know Tucker Carlson, but uh, it seems like uh, I have been on a couple of news programs and it seems like the people that are interviewing you 
want to get a certain response. They don't, they want to direct your response. And if it fits with their ideology, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just telling the truth. Yeah. Have I been, have I been trying to fit my narrative here? No, because you haven't, you haven't been, we've just been talking. Yeah. You've allowed me to talk and, uh, no, not at all. All right. Um, no, you've, uh, this has just been a conversation. This has been awesome. I think, uh, I think as well. Um, thank you for opening up. I'm sorry. Um, if I made you. No, no, don't, no, don't get that at all. I mean, I was, I was just being a light moment. I was, I was, Ann and I were, uh, in Dallas at, uh, we were invited to a, a dinner party and, um, Peter McCullough and his wife were there and, um, John Leake and his mom, we all had a dinner party. It was a great conversation. And after dinner, we sat around just like this and had a conversation. And I said, I knew I was coming on here. I said, I bet Marty would like to have a video camera rolling right now <laughs> because it was such a stimulating, thought-provoking conversation. I wish we could have, after the fact, we probably wouldn't have been as free as what we were with our, with our speeches mm-hmm. as we were, but it was still, didn't you think it was good? It was good. Uh, yeah why but like why can't you be as like, that's the thing that like why are you afraid to be as free as you were in that like, obviously you should well I mean Pe- Peter's, Peter's currently being investigated by the American Board of Internal Medicine to try to disbar him for because, what, what is their justification uh, what is their stated justification or what is their justification they have no justification because he completely follows the scientific evidence and he will back it up and he's, he's taking it on, um, head on. He's like challenging him. Okay, let's debate this in public. Let's get this out. Mm-hmm. And so far he hasn't, uh, hasn't gotten any responses, but that's the only way you can debate it. You've got to fight it with truth. You've got to fight with truth. Yeah. You can't cower because some organization is, uh, coming at you because you're, you're speaking against their narrative. Yeah. What is the technical justification they're trying to use? Disinformation. 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 A made-up word. Only yeah, that's why I like. To, I don't like using that term. I've, I've. Yeah. I, I, because it's, it's used too freely and it's used too much to attack people. Yeah, misinformation, disinformation. What, what are these things? They just came out of nowhere, like two years ago. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, the, one of the big things with this pandemic was follow the science. Follow the science. Oh, you're not following the science. What is science? Science is literally testing a hypothesis. Exactly. And is any scientific breakthrough ever brought about by groupthink? Or is it brought about by people who think outside the box? Yeah. I mean, how was was penicillin started? Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, I was watching this little YouTube video the other day and this guy was talking about uh, these people that were coming out of the out of the universities, how they were made idiots. And they were just, all they could do was talk about the papers and the peer review and the randomized control studies and blah, 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 blah. He goes, he goes, the greatest candle maker in the world never even thought about the light bulb. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, they don't, I mean, somebody gets into, into what you're doing and you're, it's, it's all right. And then somebody that comes up with a different idea, it's like, no, that's way out there. But that's what that's how progress is made. Yeah, that's how Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin just came into the world and was like, hey, this dude Satoshi figured out a way to solve the double spend problem with proof of work and 
nobody people had tried digital currencies many many times before Satoshi came. And it wasn't until he combined a bunch of things that nobody was thinking about until Bitcoin actually became a thing. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty somewhat remarkable. successful. <clears throat> it's um, it's outside of my wheelhouse to really understand Bitcoin, um, um, but I love the I love the concept. Yeah. I absolutely love the concept. It's very anti guy. It is Friedrich Hayek's sly roundabout way to take money out of the hands of government. Uh, Bitcoin, um, and again, I think it's desperately neat because people that don't like to be told what to do. That's why I fix the money, fix the world right here in this uh, oh. neon sign outside. Is Oh, cool. I think a lot, I think a lot of the problems that we're discussing today stem from the fact that these governments can just print money, give it to the NIH to go invest in the Wuhan lab to create gain of function COVID. Um, they can subsidize corn production for high fructose corn syrup. They can subsidize wind and solar energy in favor of fossil fuels, um, which leads to negative externalities that we've been discussing today. I think below every layer that we've been discussing today is the money that, that enables like, the misallocation of capital and resources. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, um, it's a good legalized money laundering operation for politicians. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going we're gonna to go eat some steaks later. I told Anne, I haven't told you yet, but our refrigerator broke. We were going to cook steaks at my house. Um, but we had to throw everything out of our refrigerator this morning oh. after it went sour overnight. But Refrigerator uh, or freezer? Both oh, combined. The, the freezer of my half cattle is separate, thank God. Uh, and so that's fine. Um, we don't have everything we need to prepare a meal. So I think we're going to go to a steakhouse if you're okay with that. Awesome. I love it. There, is there a good steakhouse in Austin? There's a few. I, think we I can thought find there one. would be. Yeah, I think, I think we can throw a rock outside and, and hit one. Um, but what about our cholesterol? <laughs> <laughs> better better not eat that red meat. It's going to kill you. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, let's talk okay. about it. Okay. All right. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of an animal-based carnivore diet, and we've seen uh, tremendous results and benefit from curing chronic disease by putting people on a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet. Or, um, and uh, I have this conversation and I talk about the dietary guidelines and how people got uh, fat and unhealthy based on the dietary guidelines. And um, everybody else asked me, what about your cholesterol? <laughs> Guess what? Is it high? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've been, we have been getting back to the money issue in big pharma. We have been um, basically brainwashed into thinking that cholesterol causes heart disease. And it's not cholesterol at all. In my, in my mind, it is inflammation. Mm -hmm. And um, it's another correlation, not causation thing where they're using it, like where correlation is causation. Yeah. Um, you know, does cholesterol make up part of our atherosclerotic plaque? Yeah, but so does fibrin and other things. And cholesterol is needed and used by every brain and every, every cell in your body. And when I look at someone's cholesterol panel, I really don't pay a whole lot of attention to total and LDL cholesterol, which has been the dogma in 
in medicine my entire medical career, I look at triglycerides and HDL cholesterol. Those are markers of inflammation. And why does a carnivore diet work? Why does a low-carb diet work? Because it lowers your inflammation. And how does it do that? It lowers your dependence on insulin. Insulin is the hormone that takes blood sugar and transports it into the cells. And uh, if you eat a high-carb diet, you've got a lot of sugar running around in your body and need, your pancreas needs to produce a lot of insulin. Insulin happens to be inflammatory. It triggers inflammatory cytokines and cells throughout our body. And I tell people, if cholesterol was the evil villain that Big Pharma has made it out to be, then why is there, of all the classes of drugs that they've come up with, why is it only one class, the statins, show any statistically significant benefit in reducing heart disease? All the other cholesterol drugs that pharmaceutical company has come up with have not been able to show any statistically significant reduction in the risk of heart attack and stroke. Probably because the mechanism is not cholesterol lowering, probably because it's arterial wall stabilization and anti-inflammatory effects that the statins have on the arterial wall and the endothelial lining. And interestingly, statins are also part of our uh, chest of things that we can use to mitigate inflammation with COVID-19. And interestingly, the people that do so bad with COVID-19, which is an inflammatory condition, are people that are in a high inflammatory state, the obese and the diabetics, who have super high levels of insulin. So as simple as lowering your insulin requirements and your insulin. Can going to a carnivore diet help cure something like diabetes? Absolutely. Yeah. It's done it numerous times. It'll type two diabetes, not type one. Mm-hmm. Type two. Type two diabetes is a disease of obesity and insulin resistance where the insulin is not working as well and, and the cells aren't taking, it takes more insulin to r- reduce your blood sugar. Um, but yeah, we've had great results in clearing up anxiety, depression, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, brain fog, arthritis, type two diabetes mellitus. That's what, um, for me personally, eczema is inflammatory, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I was had chronic eczema my whole life until I cut sugar and uh, went to a low carb diet right after college. Literally, twenty two years of my life, my arms would like here up, especially in the fall and winter for some reason, <clears throat> just be covered in eczema. Yeah, I, eczema is an inflammatory condition. Yeah, yeah, haven't had it for over a decade now. Not once, where I thought I was plagued with it for my whole life. You know, and and studies now are showing that uh, as we age, lower your cholesterol, the shorter time you live. Really? Yeah. I have, I mean, we have incidences all the time. I mean, uh, heart disease is so complex, uh, but it's not, it's not cholesterol. Um that people with cholesterols of 300 live in their 90s and 100s. I've heard of some doctors even wanting to put them on a cholesterol medicine. And I've had people with total cholesterols of 180 that undergone bypass surgery. It's not cholesterol. It's, it's an inflammatory 
damage to the arterial walls. But big pharma would have you believe that everybody has to go around with a very low cholesterol. Anybody with a high cholesterol needs to be on a statin. Yeah. But on top of that, we need to, uh, we need to put masks on all the cows to stop the methane from, from getting into the atmosphere. <laughs> you got to stop farming cows. You got to eat the bugs. Are the bugs healthy? Should we eat the bugs? Is that good protein? I don't know if it is or not, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing it either. Yeah. Oh gosh. It, it's, it's, it's absurd to me to see these celebrities that jet set around all over the country talk about climate change over the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's completely absurd. And, um, we're, we're very anti-climate change hysteria here on this podcast. I actually watched a documentary last night that 100% convinced me that it's, it's the sun, stupid. The sun is changing the temperature on the planet. Mother Nature is the largest, most powerful force on Earth. And the climate has been changing for millions of years. You know, we did have an ice age at one time. Yeah, uh, 1,400 years ago, there was a, there was a or the year 1,400, there was a mini ice age in, in England. Oh, really? You're arguably coming out of that. Like, of course it's going to get warmer when you're coming out of an ice age. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was a kid, it was um, global warming. And then now they're having a hard time documenting that the world is becoming significantly uh, warmer. And so now they're calling it climate change. And uh, I remember as a teenager being taught in school that Los Angeles was going to be underwater by, I don't know, it was, it was decades ago that they were going to be underwater mm-hmm. um, if, if things didn't change. And the Maldives shouldn't exist. LA is going to be going. Miami is going to fall into the ocean. Manhattan's gone as well. Yeah. Um, and somebody told me this the other day and I really hadn't thought about it. What happens when water freezes? Things slow down. It expands. Expands. So why would melting <laughs> ice caps cause flooding? Well, very good point. Another point too is all that ice is extremely heavy. So I had Patrick Moore, the original founder of uh, Greenpeace, on the show. He left Greenpeace because he noticed it turned into like some eco-terrorist organization. But the one thing that he said on the show that really like blew my mind was like, especially with like people saying glaciers melting is going to lead to like a flooding of land was like those glaciers are so heavy that when they melt uh, all that weight gets off the landmass and goes into the ocean then like the landmass actually rises up because all that weight's like not compressing on it anymore and I want uh, our listeners to 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 realize I am not for pollution and dirty air yeah <laughs> I'm I'm for protecting our environment but you know, when you start calling carbon dioxide an environmental pollutant, something that is essential for life and essential for photosynthesis and essential for production of oxygen, you've gone off the, yeah, gone off the rails a little bit. If you believe CO2 is a pollutant, technically we've been polluting each other the whole time we've been talking. <laughs> I don't know if you know it, but you breathe out CO2 whenever, yeah. Uh, yeah. whenever you exhale. And plants use it. Yeah. Plants use it. Yeah. I want to bring back megafauna. Uh, that's, 
I would love to see a great greening of the earth. That's the other thing too. You go down the line, plants use it. Uh, earth's actually getting greener. More people die from severe cold than severe heat. Uh, like I'm a beach boy. I love the beach. I think everybody should experience the beach life. We just made the whole world one big beach. That'd be sweet. Now I'm going to get yelled at because I'm like, ah, oh, you're not thinking about. But honestly, the climate hysteria, in combination with a bunch of other things that we've been talking about, is destroying our economy. Like this forced transition to unreliable wind and solar, literally putting us in an energy crisis. There was a blackout in central Austin yesterday. Texas is supposed to be the energy capital of the U.S. Should not happen in the energy capital of the U.S. You know how you control people? Fear. Yeah. They created a climate crisis. They're talking about a climate. They've been talking about a climate crisis ever since I was a kid. And now I'm one of the old codgers. <laughs> oh, they've been, I mean, they really drilled Earth Day in. I mean, Al Gore, big meme. I did, I did fall for it for a little bit there. But then you realize like these like the outgoers of the world are just grifters. And when you think of the consequences of changing the world as drastically as they want to, it's a net negative. More people are going to die from all these changes than ever would. Just think about all the people that are going to die from famine in Africa because of our lockdowns and everything that we've been experiencing from our, pan our uh, response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I think when it's all said and done, more people have died from the response than the actual virus itself. When you look back five, six years from now. Is he still still here in the United States? Too bad we're not an oligarch. We could uh <laughs> we could uh form the narrative. Yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah. We've got our own form of propaganda. It's called truth. That <laughs> is <laughs> um, yeah. I forget what I was gonna say. I was gonna say something about uh Oh yeah, like the, you know, the unemployment alone. Like the big meme right now is like, oh, are we going into a recession? Everybody's like, look at the strong labor market. I'm like, look at the labor participation rate. Like it cratered uh, in 2020 during the lockdowns, and right now it's hovering at 1977 levels. Like thinking about the mass unemployment that's out there due to the initial reaction, it seems like it's going to get worse with all this inflation and people having to tighten the belt at the corporate level. Hey. Well, little personal story. Um, when I was employed and I traveled to Luray, Virginia for my job, sometimes I'd stop at a little restaurant called Hardy's uh, on my way in, and I get a little caffeine there. I'm a big tea drinker. I love tea. That's one of my vices. And some mornings I would come in, and the lobby was closed. Because they didn't have anybody to work. Yeah. Other mornings I'd come in and they wouldn't have cups. Can you believe Hardee's doesn't have cups? Right. I mean, there's something really wrong with what's going on when Hardee's doesn't have cups. Doesn't have <laughs> cups or doesn't have people to work. I mean. And one thing that really irked me is when they didn't have lemons. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, that's actually one thing I've noticed here. Um, I was getting tacos at my favorite taco joint. Like every once in a while, they'll run out of limes and they'll give you lemons to squirt on. I'm like, I've never squirted a lemon on a taco. It's uh, 
there's these weird, like you're having like sriracha shortages now, you're having tampon shortages, formula shortages. Is a, hey, you know how you, you know how you get rid of the tampon shortage? You know how you solve the tampon shortage? How? Take the tampon dispensers out of the men's bathroom. <laughs> how you defi- what is a man? What is a man? What is a woman? <laughs> That's easy to define. That's easy to define. Uh, did you watch that movie? What is a woman? No, I haven't. That's a good one. Is, was Walsh. that the one that who who did that? Matt Walsh. Did a really yeah, the, good job. yeah, yeah. Amanda was telling me about that. I haven't I haven't uh, watched it yet, but uh, it's. I mean, it's it just highlights how insane the world has gone, where you can't even get somebody who's so bought into the insanity of the woke culture to define what a woman is. That's the thing. We're getting away from definitions and again, an anchor in truth uh, in so many aspects of life. Like, yeah. When I came to medical school, um, I'm not going to touch that anymore. I'll just, we'll just stop there. All right. Get really get myself in trouble. <laughs> I don't want to get you in any more trouble. Yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm very happy we did it. Thank you for coming in the studio today. Thank you for having me. And thank goodness that Matt and Amanda met you and introduced us. <laughs> um, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I hope Matt's, you're, I hope Matt's you're the happy. man. Matt's, Matt's the one that introduced me to Bitcoin. I yeah. wish I had listened to him five years ago when he was initially telling me about it. Yeah. Um, I hope you're happy I got your father-in-law in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No trouble yet. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, like I said earlier, you've an incredible job of, of raising your children. Amanda, who I know personally, um, did a great job of picking a husband. Uh, and your granddaughter is uh, a little firecracker as well. She is that. Yeah. She is. She's, she's, uh, Amanda says she's a lot like Matt, which I'm sure she is, but she's really a lot like Amanda was when she was a little girl, the most focused, hardworking kid on the face of the planet, no matter what she wanted to do, to do she wanted to excel in anything she did. And uh, I've learned a lot from my kids, my children, all, every, all four of them. Learned a lot from Amanda. That's what uh, I'm learning a lot from my kids right now, too. It's uh, patience being the number one thing. That's a, as a new dad, you, you learn patience real quick. It's, uh, it's fun. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy as they grow, they'll develop their own personalities and their own. Um, yeah, I just, I learn so much from my children on a daily basis. Yeah. It's like, how did I ever raise you? Yourself? <laughs> yeah, and the personality <laughs> stuff too, my two and a half year old. It's crazy. It's coming out. Like I just dropped him off at camp last week for the first time and it was... Did you cry? Uh, I did not cry. My wife did. She actually didn't have the, uh, uh, the courage to actually go because she didn't want to... She was worried that he was going to have like a fit and like freak out, but he couldn't get away from me fast enough. He was just like, see ya. That's pretty cool. <laughs> he wasn't clingy. He was, he was looking forward to it. Yeah. He's having a good time. Well, here's to trying to make the world a better place for our children and grandchildren. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. I hope, uh, I hope we have brought some value to uh, your listeners and given them a different perspective and, and tell them to get out there and start paying attention and, uh, Definitely pay attention to your food, your food sources, and uh, the food policy of this country because uh, future generations depend upon it. Think about your food. Think about your money. Think about your health. 
Think about the propaganda that's being fed into your mind. Peace and love, freaks.